0: Welcome to the Always Evolving Podcast. This is a podcast for those committed to always learning, always growing, always evolving into greater, more expansive versions of themselves. It's about living the life you want to live, a life most only dream about. Let's explore the possibilities together. I'm your host, Erica Boucher. I'm here today talking with Michael Collins. Michael is the founder of sugaraddiction.com and chairman of the board of the Food Addiction Institute. Mike has been completely sugar-free for over 30 years and has worked closely with others to help them regain lives ravaged by various substance use disorders. He raised two children sugar-free from the womb to over six years old when they only had sugar Once a month for their entire childhood. Oh, that's interesting. I want to hear about that. And Mike has written a book called The Last Resort Sugar Detox Guide. It was rated number one in healthy living on Amazon. And I'm really excited to be talking with you today, Michael, because this is something that has certainly touched my life. I mean, there's definitely sugar addiction in my family. And I have noticed myself just what a role sugar plays in my life i started the year january 1st with a 30 day sugar detox like no sugar because i found that i was eating like i'd have a meal and 20 minutes later 30 minutes later i was hungry but i wasn't it wasn't that i was really hungry but i was craving something and i i, I had this kind of this feeling of something's missing i need something and I realized that it was sugar. Like my body was craving sugar. And so that it's like like an addiction, like any addiction. I felt like something was missing and I wasn't going to be satisfied until I had sugar. And it took a couple of weeks for that to really start to subside. And I've done pretty well with it for several months, but I would say probably just about a couple of weeks ago, right around Easter time, I was at a family function and there were there was cake and stuff like that. And sure enough, here it is a couple weeks later. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm already craving sugar again. Like it's already a part of my life. I was doing without it for the most part for five months and it's already creeping back in. So I'm fascinated by this topic and I can't wait to hear what you have to say. So let me just dive in. What's your story? Why is this topic so important to you?
1: Oh, I'll, I want the long version or the short version.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you want. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, I was just a regular kid. I mean, we grew up with uh, literally unfettered access to the sugar bowl. Uh, it, I actually, when my parents passed, I, I grabbed that sugar bowl. I have it now at my house. It was a pewter silver, uh, silver sugar bowl, and we could put as much sugar as we wanted on cereal, and if there wasn't an inch or a half an inch or, you know, of sugar to scrape up with the milk, at the end of the thing, you didn't put enough on your Cheerios, right? And so we just, and my mother was a, God lover, she was a sugar junkie from, the, from Jump Street, and that's a long story about how she got there, but I, I think I reverse engineered how, why it happened when she was younger. But the end, you know, we just, I just, all my life, it was sugar, 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 I really genuinely believe, Erica, that it was my first addiction but in our family and, and pretty much in society at that time, uh, it was normal. Kids got candy and it was okay. And we would go out Halloween and literally big grocery bags filled with stuff and, and it lasts for weeks. And 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 my parents didn't regulate it in any way. They were happy that we had it. You know, they happy they didn't have to pay for it. And Kool-Aid, we would make the Kool-Aid with the, we didn't get much soda because we couldn't afford it, but We would make the Kool-Aid and just literally pour entire cups of sugar in it. And we could do it. They weren't regulating it in any way. So, you know, that kind of went on. And I was athletic, so I didn't, weight wasn't an issue. And I got into college and high school and stuff. And like the regular kids, I did a lot of drugs and alcohol. And, uh, you know, a decade later, that kind of went sideways. And I ended up in recovery from drugs and alcohol stuff and what i found was a lot of my fellows in the recovery programs they ended up um gaining really f- like the freshman 15 in college they call it but they gained a lot of weight really fast like literally in the first 60 days 90 days and in, in first year they would gain a lot of weight and as it went on they would have health issues as well and uh and there were food programs back then but i didn't really go to them and so about like 30 some odd years ago, I read a book, Sugar Blues is the name of it, written by literally the um, the the husband of Gloria Swanson, the famous actress. And he was at a party one time and a voice, he was putting a lump of sugar in his coffee and a voice from behind said, I wouldn't have that in my house, let alone my body. <laughs> and it was Gloria Swanson. And so they ended up getting married and the whole thing. And, uh, and he wrote about it, and it just fascinated me. And I was into health. I was into wellness at the time. And so I just kind of started to try and do it myself. And it was dang near impossible. My fellows in recovery, they didn't really want to talk about it. They wanted to know, are you sober today? Yeah, well, forget about the sugar, you know. Don't worry about it. They used to call me the weird addiction specialist, you know. <laughs> I, did, I didn't drink coffee, you know, no caffeine, no sugar. And then I kind of discovered the flower part. So it was. It took me a while. I mean, I literally went back and forth with it for years, I'm not exaggerating, years. So you're not alone in that, Erica. I mean, it, it takes time, it takes time and support. And I didn't really have any back then. So then I got married and, and uh, somehow I got my wife at the time to buy into this idea of, because I was constantly talking about it. And uh, we raised, you know, from the womb, from the time she got pregnant, You know, a lot of people will quit alcohol, they'll quit it just like that as soon as they find out they're pregnant. Or cigarettes, uh, hard habits to quit, they'll just drop it like a hot potato as soon as they find out they're pregnant, right? And I actually believe that sugar should be in that category and I think it will be one day soon. But yeah, she bought into it and for the length of her pregnancy, and uh, just so you know, she had 14 plus pounds of baby in there, almost 15, two twins, uh, almost eight pounds apiece, and she gained a grand total of 20 pounds, so only six extra pounds, right? Wow. Yeah, and so, and then the boys, uh, we had, and we had, and I think parents have 100% control of their food. For the first at least four years of life, so they just didn't have any sugar, and they didn't really care because they didn't know what it was. Even they had no idea what it was, and they didn't care that they had it. They liked fruit and they liked vegetables. And people would walk up to us and say, "How do you get your kids to eat like that? Like they'd be eating from the salad bar to, in their high chairs." And they'd say, "How do you? You don't give them anything else, you know? They'll eat a lot of fruit and a lot of vegetables, you know, if you don't give them sugar. They they're not attracted to it." So. And then one day we're at a birthday party and uh, a roller skating ring. I'll never forget it. The cake came out and both heads looked at me like, can we please this time, dad? And it was, <laughs> it was a long fight with grandparents and uh, the schools, uh, literally the Montessori schools and uh, other people's parents. And they would say, you know, the poor kids are depriving them. It's not right and we we held our ground for 6 years but after that we gave in and and at outside birthday still no soda no, no sugar at all in the house or at home but you know if if they went to a birthday party they could have a limited amount so yeah i mean it it's just been part of my life my both my parents died of alzheimers and my mother at the end of her life when there was no filter the only thing she wanted to eat was sugar basically that's all she wanted to eat and it, you know, when you see something that up at close and personal, I was able to be there most of the time. When you see that, there's something, you've come from an addictive background where you've helped folks over the years get off hard drugs. And so, and I helped a lot of my fellows in that time period too, uh, during the recovery stuff, people had, who had already quit intravenous drugs, heroin, cocaine, alcohol, and to a man and to a woman, each one of them said that getting off sugar was harder. and
0: Well, it's in everything. I was just having this conversation with two different people on my way home to do this interview with you, and both of them said it's in everything. It's like the hardest thing to give up. It's like I try to put it in perspective. Imagine if you were trying to give up heroin, and and yet it was everywhere, and you you had – it would be so much more difficult. Like heroin's heroin and you know, okay, all I have to do is stop this one thing. And granted, it's, it's addictive from what I understand. But with sugar, it's everywhere. It's been hugely normalized. And so even when you think you're staying away from sugar, you discover that it's been hiding in all of these other things that you've been having without you necessarily even realizing it. So it's kind of, it's hard to get away from it. (laughs) There
1: is a level of eternal vigilance that is required for sure. It's hard. I mean, it really, it's the societal part that's harder for folks. I mean, the withdrawals are tough and the emotional adjustments are tough, but the societal, like you're saying, is hard. It's difficult to be different, um, to be insistent in a restaurant where, You have to ask the server and not even only the server. He said, you got to get literally to the chef because servers don't know what's in the sauces and stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, it it takes a little bit of, uh, you really got, you got to want it. I mean, you truly have to want it. And in this day and age with, uh, you know, the obesity rate skyrocketing in the last 30 years with the addition of both high fructose corn syrup and, You know, the percentage of what you're talking about, stuff, sugar in other stuff besides traditional sweets or, you know, candies or cakes or whatever, is just escalated so much that I think the number's above 80% now of all box bag canned products in the the grocery store have sugar in it for some reason or another, you know. And it just doesn't make any sense, but.
0: It's like our taste buds have been so changed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it, hijacked, that if there's not a baseline of sugar in everything, like, it's almost like that's the starting point. Start with sugar, meet that baseline need for sugar, and then we can talk about taste after that. <laughs> yeah, I think it changes. It changes taste buds and, and what- um, Well, the science
1: and, and, the, and the evolution is very interesting in that the, the uh, sugar companies were hiding the fact that you know sugar was addictive or causing things by demonizing fat. And so everything went fat free. Well, when you go fat free, it tastes like tar- like cardboard. And so they had to add something in it and, and they used the sugar. And we've kind of, a lot of that's been discovered to be false science, basically uh, uh, paid for by these big sugar companies. And, you know, it's like trying to turn a big battleship that's been steaming forward full speed for 30 years. Now you got to re educate the public. That's a big project.
0: Okay, so let me ask you, what is sugar's revenge? You wrote about this in your bio that you sent me, and it said, learn about sugar's revenge and why the average 7, 10, 21, or 30-day detoxes seem to make your cravings for sugar even worse, and how to fix it. Well, this has taken
1: a lot of years to kind of recognize the patterns, if you will. When you see so many people try to get off sugar over the years that I have, you start to see the same thing happening on day three, as five, as seven, as 10, as 30, as 50, as six months. You start to see the same repetitive patterns, right? And what I've seen over the years is the analogy, as we were talking earlier, about the analogy to really hardcore addictions. They have something called PAUSE, which is post-acute withdrawal syndrome. And What happens physically, everybody's focused on the weight. Everybody's focused on their skin and looking better and losing weight and getting off diabetes med and all that body stuff is very, very important. But what they're leaving out is the part that is more tied to the background, if you will, or the evolution of addiction and the how it treats the dopamine receptors in your brain, the serotonin receptors in your brain, and generally the overall reward systems of norepinephrine and adrenaline, it just really affects it. And that's the reason people in recovery, relapse, recidivism rate is high. And it's hard to get off it because since you were a child, think back to that description of the Cheerios and the cereal and that life, we never equated the idea that we, were, we could solve emotional problems, emotional issues, angst, worry, concern, fear, anger. We could solve it with sugar, right? And people that are honest, people that have done this work and written it all down, start to realize that they are unconsciously using sugar to affect their own, their reward systems, and they don't have other methods. The other methods, uh, working out, yoga, reading, calling a friend, taking a bath, taking a walk, walking the dog, these things take time and effort to give yourself a release valve, to calm down, to kind of walk through whatever the upset is. Reaching for sugar is a habit that we've developed over you know, our entire life. And it's been ubiquitous and pretty much free. It's around the house most of the time you can score. And yes, that's a drug term. You can score some sugar, no problem. And then, but you don't think that you're putting the two together. And when you get to be our age, in a lot of ways, you're just fighting off sugar withdrawals. You're just cannot, you're in a meeting, you know, you tried to quit sugar for a day or two, you can't go back. You can't, you know, you, you've got to go, you've got to have the sugar so you can have the meeting and we'll worry about it later. It's just a reframe of how you're looking at what sugar has been doing to you over the years. Mm-hmm. And sure, we all know the teeth and we all know the, the weight gain, but we don't look at that emotional component and people that do get free of the drug.
0: Okay, so what you're saying is to identify, notice like when are you reaching for it? What's it helping you not have to deal with or feel? And so that you're really healing or growing, developing that part of yourself. Mm -hmm. And then the need for the sugar goes away. That's interesting because I often tell when when people come to me and they say, because I lead a yoga teacher training, it's one of the things that I do. And people will say to me, I really want to do this one day, but I but I still smoke cigarettes and so they feel like they need to put it off or I really want to come to this yoga retreat, but I I like to drink wine or, you know, they have this list of reasons why they're not ready yet. Mm -hmm. And I always say just instead of thinking about what you need to give up, just focus on your own growth and development and those things that no longer serve you will start to fall away because they're just not going to resonate with you anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking the same thing here. Because I definitely noticed, like, I'm not a hardcore sugar addict, but I was doing things that I thought, well, this is certainly an improvement. I was staying away from refined sugars and I would use things like honey, you know, or and I would make my own desserts, you know, chocolate avocado mousse, you know, with raw cacao and avocado and coconut milk. And I would use honey as the sweetener. But I noticed those cravings weren't going away because it's still sugar. And Mm -hmm. so I was, I thought I was kind of, it was an improvement, I, I guess. But there was still, I was still finding ways for it to still be a part of my life by, but at the same time thinking that I was making the healthier choice or the healthier alternative. And what I finally came to realize is I was actually putting on more weight doing that. And so I started to realize, you know, I, it's, I just got to give up sugar for a while. And it was kind of an experiment to see what that felt like. And I felt amazing. You know, my skin was clear. I had two or three total strangers in in a couple weeks time say, wow, your skin is so clear and smooth and, you know, which was awesome. You know, total strangers acknowledging that I had this glow and I started trimming down and just the the most interesting little side effects Mm. that I didn't realize I was having as a result of sugar. You know, those things were starting to go away. So it's interesting when you just focus on growing yourself, like focus on growth and development and being healthy and being happy, the things that start to fall away. But sugar is, it's so insidious because it is everywhere. So what do you say to people? Some people aren't even aware that they have a sugar addiction, right? I'm aware that it's its definitely in my realm. By no means do I feel like I have kicked the habit. All it takes is one indulgence and then... Three days later, I'm thinking about it again. So what do you suggest, in addition to addressing the emotional piece, what are some ways that people can start moving in this direction of sugar detox? This podcast is brought to you by my book, Showing Up Naked. Peel away the layers to your authentic self so you can live the life you want to live. Find out who you are and why you're here. Understand the messages your emotions have been trying to send you for years and learn how to make even the most challenging relationships work. Find out why showing up naked is being hailed as the best life workbook you will ever read. I've got a special limited time offer for you right now. When you visit www.showingupnaked.com.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I I do want to uh, recognize the, uh, The skin thing, I I really think that uh, more people should talk about that because it's it's really a nice side effect or side bonus or side benefit, and they'd spend a lot less on cosmetics and stuff because it's just amazing Mm -hmm. that one benefit. What's developed, like I said, in the pattern recognition of of people coming off? I worked with this Olympic athlete, this woman placed in the Olympics, and she was struggling for a long time, right? and she just you know, couldn't put it down. And then we kind of, and, and I had known this before personally, it was the first thing that I quit, is that caffeine is a, a tough part of the process. There, were, You know, that phrase that neurons that wire together, fire together, fire together, wire together, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Things are so combined, everything, caffeine has sugar, chocolate, coffee, whatever, everything is kind of combined. And the anxiety of the difficulty of trying to do both at the same time was hard. So if I were to, you know, I, I, I kind of teach a protocol that is caffeine first, sugar second, flour third. And because it's really hard to do all three at the same time. Socially, it's really hard emotionally. Um, so when they do one at a time and they get solid in in the withdrawals of each one, which are all different, you will go through withdrawals each time. But it's almost like using a methadone program. Basically, what you do is you you know you use a little bit of sugar. You don't go crazy. You, use, you know you just you, you, you maintain. Use a little bit of sugar as you're coming off the caffeine, and then you use a little bit of flour as you're coming off the sugar, and then. You've, ste- you've strategically step down and you try and go completely sugar, flour, and caffeine-free.
0: I just want to interject here. What I'm already hearing is people thinking, well, wait a minute. I thought I was giving up sugar. Do I have to give up coffee too? Do I have to give up flour too? So do these three things have to be connected to each other?
1: There's about... The The ratio that anyone has ever come up with from the Food Addiction Institute is, you know, with all the MDs and PhDs who've been working with this stuff for 20 years, is that humans are broken down into about three categories. People that can take it or leave it are about a third. People that are on the fence who can push it, like they can push themselves into an addiction or they can go the other way pretty easily are about a third. And then a third of people are biochemically unable to handle flour and sugar. Now caffeine is always a decision, but in my experience, only 10 to 15% of people succeed in continuing to be able to ingest caffeine when they try and get off sugar. And so when you you talk about personal development, personal growth, insight, uh, looking at yourself, uh, growing, The hardest thing to do in this process is to answer the question, is it possible? You don't have to say, yes, I'm I'm a sugar addict, I'm a flour addict. Is it possible that maybe my body can't handle these two things? You know, maybe they can't handle sugar and flour. And I always tell people, Erica, give yourself the gift of 90 days. See what happens. You know, if you were to go to an allergist and pay him thousands of dollars, he would put a stripe down your back and scratch, with pollen and peanuts and strawberries, he'd scratch it and put a little bit in to try and see what irritates your skin, right? It's called the allergy scratch test. Well, in this day and age of biohacking, you can do your own dang test Mm -hmm. on flour and sugar. And if I told you not to eat broccoli or not to eat something you love, fish or steak or something you for 30, 60, or 90 days, you'd say, oh, I don't like that idea, but you would do it because it's not that hard to eliminate one food product from your diet. So I think part of it is this, my job, my meta job, my large job is to separate flour and sugar as a food and a drug, right? It's not, they're not foods, they're drugs. And third, people can't biochemically handle them. So if you were to give yourself the gift of 90 days, and your skin cleared up and you lost seven or 10 pounds or 20 pounds and you felt better energy and you were not as lethargic and the headaches went away and the migraines went away and your hair got shinier and then, then make the decision. If it did, none of that happened. Hey, all you got to do is go to Seven Eleven, and you're back in business. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm, I'm only asking people to just, you know, what do they really need, right? What do they really want? And and I think, you know, you're on the right path and they want, they want to grow personally. They have to be looking at a life in the future that's bigger than the life in the past. And if they think sugar and flour need to be a part of it, well then test that idea. Test it for 90 days and then you decide if you want to go back, you know.
0: Flour is something that I really try to minimize or limit. I try not to have Mm -hmm. any, but it's another one of those things where that's a difficult one to completely stay away from. But interesting that you were relating giving up sugar with also giving up flour with also giving up coffee, because I'm I'm imagining that people listening to this are thinking, oh, no, 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 no. I thought we were talking about sugar. But if you're telling me I got to give up coffee, or if you're telling me I got to give up bread, now you've crossed the line. So... It is very fascinating to think how much we are emotionally attached to food, how Mm -hmm. much of an emotional component there is to food. It's very interesting because when I lead retreats and people come to stay – for a week or whatever. Sometimes it's vegetarian and we'll try to eliminate or at least seriously reduce the amount of gluten that's available. But I'll, I want to make sure that people that really want it have it if they need it. And also we'll try to really reduce the dairy and we'll have almond milk or coconut milk or something like that. And people really love it for that week. And some of them will implement some of the things that they experience there into their lives. But I don't think they completely change their diet. So I guess being able to take one or two pieces of that back into their lives is good. So I guess where I'm going with this is if somebody's wanting to focus on eliminating sugar, how attached are you to this idea they have to also give up flour or also give up coffee? Like I said, I'm not attached to flour, no problem. I have half a cup of coffee in the morning with no sugar. Don't particularly want to give that up. So Why is there a relationship between those three in your mind?
1: Well, what I said like before, it's the wired together, fired together. They're related in that way in your reward center. But more than that, it just sets up cravings for sugar. Basically, flour is sugar. Mm. It turns to sugar instantly in your stomach. And while it doesn't carry the fructose, which is what's doing all the damage, the glucose, which everyone needs, you know, the spiking of insulin, those kind of things, the body doesn't know. Even fake stuff, stevia and you know, aspartame and all these kind of um, sugar substitutes, does the same thing. The body really doesn't know the difference. So, it's it's so much. It's more important that it helps with the cravings. I mean, I think it actually wow. helps. I know it helps with health to be off of the stuff, right? But it really is. I mean, I just don't think carbohydrates have that. those types of processed carbohydrates. And caffeine is a, is a psychoactive drug. It's not a food of any kind. It's a stimulant, right? And it's a very accepted stimulant. And it's dose necessity, you know, in order to get to the Adderall kind of thing, you got to drink five or 10 cups of coffee, but you'll get there if you drink the dose amount, you'll get there. Children have died of energy drinks, you know, too much mm-hmm. caffeine in a certain period of time. And the idea that we can take in a little poison to stimulate our reward centers is not holistically, doesn't square with my values, but a lot of people, they wanna try it and that's, that's fine. But again, the success rate over thousands of people and hundreds of people personally one-on-one that I've worked with is that it's easier to quit sugar when you do all three at the same time and it's always better to try and give yourself a clean slate and then add things back. A healed up body will give you more um, information because we don't really know how good we can feel we don't know how well we can perform until we take away these substances that science says are not that great, both mentally, and we haven't talked about brain fog at all. The stuff that does to your brain, both sugar, flour, and caffeine, their mental acuity, that kind of stuff. But I always, like I said, it's not what you eat, it's what you eliminate. And if you can get to the point where you got a clean slate Try a whole grain muffin and see how you feel. See if you have sugar uh, cravings, right? Try a cup of coffee later, you know, 90 days from now and see.
0: So what can people do? Like, let's say they're at social events because that's what happened to me. I was at Easter Sunday, all the family was there. I wanted to really enjoy the festivities. And so I had this tiny little sliver of cake and it's a slippery slope, right? So what can people do? What can we do if we're in a social setting?
1: It's a great question and probably one of the core tenets of, you know, what we teach and what we have to educate folks and what, you know, again, my, my bigger job is to help people have tribes or societies where it's accepted and acceptable to not use that. I want to ask you a question quick. Did you feel any, um, any lift maybe uh, in mood or anything, like a, had one martini kind of thing with that cake or did you, did that not occur?
0: I don't remember having a lift and I was watching to see if I was going to have like a dip, if I was going to crash. And I had such a small amount and I don't remember feeling that crash. But since that time, within the last couple of weeks, I have found myself buying the bar of a 72% dark chocolate thinking, well, I'm making smarter choices. It's still dark chocolate, but for three or four months, I wasn't touching it. And now all of a sudden, it's interesting how I'm making these Exceptions. This is really fascinating. I've been experimenting with this myself and I know people are hip to this. People are getting wise that sugar is not healthy for the brain fog and all the inflammation that it creates in the body. I think people are starting to wise up, but it's everywhere and it feels overwhelming and it could be a really challenging addiction to overcome.
1: That's a, that's one of the things about the social people don't like that word and in the substance use disorder world that word has been eliminated in media training for substance use disorder advocates uh, and recovery advocates they do not use addict addiction a junkie you know whatever they use <clears throat> substance use disorder in because of stigma right. Mm. And, The stigma stuff is exactly what's going on in the sugar world. People think that you can do it in moderation. So thus back to the social question, which is difficult because, you know, we experience with the kids and people, it's been indoctrinated into our society over a three or 400 year period from the point when it was very, very expensive. And only the elite could have it in tiny, tiny amounts to a general very inexpensive commodity that anyone and everyone can have. Right? Um, and so it just became this thing that a lot of birthdays and all celebrations and all gatherings have some sort of sugary products as part of the process and the ritual. And you can give it. It's legal and perfectly fine to give to a one-year-old if that's how you, your value system is aligned. No problem. You can do it. It's you know No one's going to accuse you of child abuse or anything like giving them cigarettes or alcohol. And so it's just societally very difficult. And, you know, you can go into all the limbic brain and the tribe stuff, but people, when they think, well, a lot of people think that moderation is the thing you, you should be focusing on. You should just have a little and exercise it off and it's not a problem. But as I've found, like I tell people, you just spend five minutes in my inbox and see the hurt and the pain out there that one-third people can't do that. They just physically, maybe mentally, maybe biologically, who knows? We will know in 50 years diagnostically, but today we have to rely on people who have had this issue, who've lost two or 300 pounds, who've done some of the things that I've mentioned to walk out of this thing and follow their lead if they want to see if that might apply to them, right? A lot of the diagnostic stuff is coming. We have a kick sugar summit every year. And Dr. Lustig, who's probably the most eminent educator in the space, literally got a law degree so they could affect policy for sugar. And he thinks kids should have a an ID and be 18 years old to buy sugar, is releasing at that summit a report that he has discovered the molecule in fructose and what damage it causes. And he's a pediatric endocrinologist who has been working with kids obese kids for 30 years and taking out livers and uh, taking out gallbladders and had liver transplants and young kids because they're massively obese. And he's discovered finally what the fructose molecule does and how it does the damage, very similar to alcohol because it's processed just like alcohol. Mm. And societally, we're early in that game. We're early in that process of discovering scientifically and diagnostically what sugar does to the body. And so the only way, if you think it's a problem, is to listen to folks who've kind of traveled the road and uh, and have got out the other side and feel more comfortable. They've done the 90-day test. They've gone back. The recidivism rate's the same. They've gone back and forth and back and forth, some for years, literally years, before they got out of it, and they would never go back today now that they're free. So I know I don't want to sound like a zealot, but I'm really, it's hard for me to deliver the idea of something that takes a while, takes time, and is, you know, things people are curious about, but it's still related to the societal question, 99.9% of people are not ready to hear it, don't want to hear it, are mm-hmm. indoctrinated through big business and, and the food industry. And like you say, ha, it's in everything they've ever eaten. You know, they're eating now today. So it's a big one, you know. And uh, the answers to how do you do it socially, You gr- you join a group, you join a tribe who believes that maybe sugar's not that great for you. <laughs> and because then you can be buoyed up when you go into back into regular quote-unquote society to, to say no.
0: Okay, so can you give some simple, actionable steps that people can take? Because I know you said cut out coffee, sugar, flour for 90 days. What are some simple, actionable steps that people can take to start eliminating sugar from their diet? Do you recommend cold turkey, just cut it out? Do you recommend that, you know, start eliminating it here and here and here and here, like... Give our listeners maybe a simple action step that they can take if they want to start moving in the direction of living sugar free.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, the first thing you got to do is why you want to do this. If you don't have that strong reason to do it, you're not going to do it, right? If your future life, the life that you want, is not bigger than the life that you're leaving, it's not going to work. You have to say, if you've had a diabetes diagnosis, you want to try and uh, get off your meds or whatever. If it's weight issue, you know, you have to, It's it, these are all personal development stuff that I'm sure you're very aware of and familiar with. You have to be able to visualize and write down what you want out of this process, right? If it's just to lose a couple pounds, then you're a dabbler, you're dabbling in this. It's just like any other diet you've ever done. And most of our people, all of them, have tried 10 or different programs, points, Potions, pills, they've tried everything, right? And so if you don't know what you want out of it, you're never going to get it. Why do you want to do this? And it's got to be powerful and it's got to be visual and it's got to be detailed. You want to weigh 127 pounds, and that's what you got to put down. You know, that's what you got to do. And if you want to be healthy, if you want to see your kids graduate from college or your kids get married or whatever, then you've got to put that down. And then the next step is to begin some kind of step down, but eventually you're going to have to go cold turkey. Eventually you're going to have to face the withdrawals of one or two or all of them.
0: Is this something you walk people through in your book?
1: Yep, First 30 days are all mapped out day by day. And again, they overlap. People are different. People that are really heavy, got a big habit are going to be harder than people that are lean and, and it's brain fog. You'd be surprised. A lot of my folks have no weight issues at all. I mean, they're really... I mean, some of them have diabetes, but most of them have brain fog and, and, and just the obsession, just the mental obsession of getting, scoring, and eating, and hiding, and going to different 7-Elevens so the clerk doesn't recognize, you, you know, so, so it's like they're, you know, vegans, and keto, and paleo, and carnivores, they're everything, they're, they're, we're diet agnostic as long as you're eating whole foods, right?
0: But you made me think of something. I remember when I was in massage school, one of our instructors was vegetarian and he was very outspoken about it. He would give somebody a hard time and say, how's that flesh sandwich you're eating if they were eating like a a sandwich from Publix or whatever. But yet what he would do, I would see him eat like two or three Snickers bars in a day. Like he ate it like that's what he was eating. He was replacing food with sugar. And it was very ironic. Here's somebody in the health and wellness field. He's a teacher. He's an instructor. And he had very strong opinions about how we should be eating. And yet had no idea that he had a way out of control sugar addiction. I just kind of thought it was very interesting. First coach is a vegan
1: woman whose mother owned a bakery. She never had a weight problem in her whole life. And she is literally the same weight after quitting sugar, but it was just this obsession that she, you know, it sounds like your friend there. I mean, she just was eating more sugar than she was food. And she came to understand it. She came to see it in herself, that introspection, right? Is this serving me? Is this what I really want to do? You know, one of the best questions you can ask yourself when you're having cravings, and this will fall into the answer of your question is, what do I really want? What do I really need? What do I really feel? And once you can reduce it to that, once you can hear the answer, it's like your meditation retreats or your yoga retreats, once you can hear the answer to that, I I want my husband to stop yelling at me, or I want my boss to stop being a jerk, then you don't need the Snickers bar. You don't have to do it. But as far as a step down, you're always gonna have to go through withdrawals. They can be big or they can be small, but they're gonna happen, okay? And if you have systems, I mean, things to replace it with, right? Like, I'll be honest with you, people with any kind of habit, people who have any kind of addiction, that third of people who are biochemically just uh, body doesn't handle it well, they literally have this feeling of impending doom. People think they're depressed. They need to go get some SSRIs or something, right? But it's just not the case. It's your dopamine receptors and, and serotonin receptors have been pummeled, pummeled by this drug since they were in the womb, and they're downregulated, it's called, and they need time to, to heal. Honestly, the gift of 90 days is only the beginning. The real work starts in days 90 through 365, where you get your life back, where you get systems in place so that you can not be like the biggest loser, where they lose all the weight when in isolation and gain it all back, which is a proven fact. That's what happens in yo-yo dieting. And what happens is they all do it white knuckle. They do it physically. They physically don't have the product and they got through it. Athletes, like the biggest loser, are the easiest because they can substitute endorphins for it and exercise their way out of it. But without other methods of self-soothing and self-care, they end up not being able to continue. A little bit will lead to cravings and then all of a sudden – you're kind of almost right quickly back into the pattern.
0: It's almost like a smoker. They will smoke because it gives them an excuse to take a break. Like they get to go outside and they get to have some connection with their fellow coworker who's also a smoker. And they get to do that a couple of times a day to take a break from work. And so I think we do that also with sugar. Okay, I've been working all day. I've been doing a lot of stuff. I'm ready to take a break. And so that's like the treat.
1: Well, well, another guy that we had on the summit was... uh a bariatric surgeon who won't do the surgeries of any kind until they understand this. And he, he actually, he's one of the ones that can still drink coffee. And he talks about that 30 minute break. And mentally, you just need a break, you know, if you're concentrating. And he uses the coffee still, but other people need to have other things and snacking and sugar in general has become that pressure relief valve,
0: you know, mm. like
1: going out and smoking. And, and you know, when things aren't were going well, and a lot of times people get off their first round of sugar and things are okay in life financially relationships and work and everything's okay but then when a quick a little upset happens just any kind of little upset it's almost like automatic pilot you reach for this ubiquitous kind of substance that's always available and that you did before you know that pattern of stress release from before rears its ugly head and you know i think when people journal it out really kind of watch the patterns in their life, they can figure out their own patterns.
0: I always think of like, okay, crowd it out. If there's a habit you don't like, you're going to let it go. You're creating a space. So what are you going to put in that space? So if you're not going to reach for a cigarette or a drink or sugar or whatever it might be that you were reaching for out of habit, what are you going to do instead? So that you set yourself up for success by being prepared for those moments, whether it's okay, every two hours, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to go take a walk around the neighborhood, or I'm going to do something to mix it up, go do a load of laundry or pick up the phone and call a friend or something. And I think that's a really good point is recognizing and noticing when the cravings are happening and setting yourself up for success by having an alternative option. Some people will be great all day long. They'll be really on top of it, really conscious of their diet, what they're eating, how they're engaging in exercise or whatever. And then comes 7.30, 8 o'clock rolls around and there all of a sudden, yeah. And so if we're not prepared for that, then that's the time when people could start doing the snacking or the drinking or the whatever.
1: The bewitching hours, the after dinner kind of uh, before bed kind of thing.
0: I think that's really good advice. Get conscious and clear on when is it that you're feeling the desire, the need for this? And what could you be doing instead? What would be a great activity or habit to replace it with?
1: Yeah, I, I feel the need to, to insert here that that you have to at least buy into the fantasy, my fantasy, or not so much even my fantasy anymore, my actual experience. The idea that sugar is powerful enough to alter how you feel, right? Mm-hmm. And that you have been doing it unconsciously and give it the respect that maybe 10 or 15 years from now, science will have given it, right? Do the research into folks who have gone before you and actually accomplished this goal, if this is indeed a goal of yours, whether it started from weight loss or whatever, it doesn't matter how it started, but if it is a goal to test it in your body and your life, give sugar that respect as a, a possible psychoactive drug that could be playing with those feelings and, and that kind of thing. And then, like you say, replace it with something else for now. Just test it. Right?
0: Well, this is fascinating. Thank you so much. How can people find you if they want to know more? If they want to get your book, it's available on amazon.com, right? It's called The Last Resort Sugar Detox Guide. Learn yeah. how to quickly and easily detox from sugar and stop cravings completely.
1: In the US, it's free right now and a promotion. And I have SugarAddiction.com. I really appreciate you having me. This is Getting this message out is important to me and I think to a lot of folks. So,
0: I agree. I think it is important to get it out there and start having a conversation about it. So thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. I will make sure to include in the show notes the link to your website and how people can find your books. We can make sure people get this into their hands. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Always Evolving. Please feel free to share this episode with anyone you think might appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this podcast, let me know by giving me a five-star rating. Until next time, keep learning, keep growing, keep evolving.